0: God, we just thank you for this time. Um, God, help us to soften our hearts to the message that Joseph would have us um, here today, Lord. And uh, God, again, just uh, quiet our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to for what you would have us uh, here today. It's your name, Lord. Amen. So, um... One of the things that uh, I mentioned when we kind of opened up was about, uh, you know, having this conversation earlier this week with some people who were talking about other individuals in their lives who maybe had um, kind of pushed them in a different direction when it came to their beliefs. And, you know, a lot of it is because of, you know, kind of the way that people went about trying to tell them about Jesus or trying to hold them accountable or discipleship or whatever you want to call it. You know, and I always want to assume noble intent, right? You know, there's a um, political commentator that will use this phrase all the time, and he'll say, like, uh, the way he'll put it is never assume maliciousness where you can assume incompetence. Um, And I always kind of thought that was funny, but, uh, I mean, it's kind of true that a lot of times things that people interpret as somebody like, thinking you know some doing something bad or you know conspiring or whatever oftentimes is really completely accidental it's just they're doing in their mind what they think makes sense and it just comes across wrong well i think a lot of christians will do the exact same thing and you know some of it is cultural some of it is just kind of uh the nature of us and how personal we get about our belief system and there's all kinds of reasons why but the bottom line regardless how we get there is that It's hard to deny that there are not uh, kind of flavors of individuals within Christianity that even if they feel they're doing something that is scriptural or if they feel they're doing something that is good and glorifying to God, maybe even with the noblest of intent, they are in fact pushing individuals away from the faith. And so for us individually, the thing that we have to look at is kind of twofold. The first thing we have to look at is to say, um, don't be that guy. Don't be that person who, you know, through your passion, and through your boldness, actually pushes individuals away. Because even if you intent the kindness of things, you may actually be doing something that is coming across, you know, as, as being judgmental. You know, it's care, you have to be careful to keep in mind that to an individual who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, quoting to them the Bible and commandments and things like that are just words. You're quoting to them a rule book that they don't subscribe to. And so that's why when you look at even the way that Jesus seems to approach people, you see him doing a lot of things before giving them discipleship lessons. You'll see him feeding people, and you'll see him healing people, and you'll see him spending time with people, and there is some teaching. But you see a lot of those things happen, and then you end up seeing a lot of things that will come down to, uh, you know holding people accountable and things that we usually associate with being a little bit more harsh you can think about the individuals who approached Jesus famously and wanted to uh, you know come follow Jesus in his ministry and that each time Jesus turned them away well he turned them away only after there was already kind of that initial connection you know so the accountability came downstream there is a song that I know when I was in college would always resonate because of a couple people that would frequent our college campus, as with a lot of college campuses. And there is this guy who um, is the kind of musician that you just absolutely hate. And if you're a musician, you kind of understand it. There's a guy named Chris Thiele. And he was somebody that you can find recordings of him uh, playing his mandolin when he was nine years old. And as a grown man, I I hear this kid playing his mandolin, and I get mine, and I put it back in the case. And I say, I just quit right now, because I will never be that good. So no point in even trying for the rest of my life. Um, well, he has a lot of um, he has a lot of uh, songs that that are that are kind of interesting because um, he's always tried to kind of think outside the mainstream. But he has one in this album I used to listen to a lot that um, uh, was called The Believer. And a couple lines from this song I thought were interesting. It says, you can point and laugh. I'm sure he's used to that. Using faith like an acrobat till the net breaks. He won't get upset, though we've never met. I know everything he said because a friend told me. He's got hellfire in his eyes. There's madness behind the lies. He would burn us all alive just to prove his point. God save the believer. We mistake for a deceiver because it makes us feel better. And I think I like that because, you know, I, there, there's something whenever I'd see these individuals on my own college campus that I, you would look at and you would kind of judge them. But at the same time, there was like a part of you that was looking at them and saying, but I feel like they're doing something right. And I'm just really conflicted on what's happening because see, we would have these two individuals, one of them who basically would just stand up and he wouldn't yell at anybody or anything. He literally would stand up and he would pace back and forth with his Bible and he would just read the Bible and that's all he would do. He wouldn't sit here and preach about anything that you were doing and how you were living your life or anything. He would literally just, he would just read the gospel. That's all he would do. And um, it was interesting. He never got as big of crowds and everything, but it was funny because, you know, you'd have people who would just sit down and just just listen to him, you know, because they were interested. But then you had somebody that sounds a lot more like this song, and he was not that way. He would absolutely yell at people. and It was important to him that all these college students understand that the way they're living is detestable to God and is an abomination and that God will judge them and one day cast them all into the, the fiery lake of, of, of damnation. Um, and that was his tact. And you have to wonder how many individuals he maybe was able to engage with and actually tell them personally about Christ versus how many individuals he was able to strengthen or reinforce some notion in their head about saying, see, that's what those Christians are like. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I think sometimes as Christians, we tend to look at those individuals and and we have this conflicted feeling where we say we we, we like to dismiss them because it makes us feel better. Because the reality is there is something admirable there. There's something admirable about somebody who is so bold in their faith that they are willing to risk complete social rejection for what they believe in. And there's something that's admirable about that. And I point that out because as we get into talking about people who are your classic Bible thumpers, you know, I don't want to be misinterpreted as saying that we shouldn't be bold in our faith. It would be hard to look at the Bible and not argue that these individuals who gave everything, who left everything, and who eventually ended up paying everything for their beliefs were not overtly bold in their faith. They had no problem speaking truth to authority, and they had no problem challenging the status quo, and they had no problem bucking whatever the current trends were in society. So in the same way, as we sit here and we look at individuals, and before looking at the bads and the nasties that can come along with you know being overly harsh towards other people um, it's important to start out with that preface that we are absolutely called to boldly proclaim the faith everywhere that we can now proclaiming that faith and how we proclaim that faith is where the art comes into things because here's what interestingly you don't actually see a lot of you don't see a lot of people literally just running into the streets of jerusalem randomly and screaming at people When you think of the quintessential uh, New Testament madman proclaiming things and all that kind of stuff, who do you think of in the Bible? Yes, yeah, I heard. Yeah, I say I heard over here too. John the Baptist, right? But here's what's interesting about John the Baptist: is John the Baptist? Yes, your loud, boisterous individual, no problem telling the Pharisees and Sadducees exactly what he thought and all that kind of stuff. Um, You look at him, and even with that, what you actually end up seeing was He didn't actually create his spectacle. It's God worked through him. He proclaimed the truth and that created a spectacle that God allowed to happen and people came to him. So just look here at this scene we see around John the Baptist, you know, kind of just before Christ ends up coming and getting baptized. You see this in uh, Matthew 3 verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying in the, out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized, baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, one of the things that I know that Frank is aware of, because he was there when we went sat there and went to Israel, and any of you guys who have, you know, been able to go out that way may have been able to see, is that, you know, it's funny, there's an area that's called the baptismal site, and one of the things you learn when you go over there that people tell you is that there are things that are um, kind of considered the traditional site of things, and then there is the supposed site of things, uh, The supposed site is where we say, hey, look, from the references that we have in the Bible and from information we know from history and other, you know, kind of extra biblical records we have, this is where, like, an archaeologist would look and would dig and investigate if they wanted to find evidence of this thing happening is in this spot. And then there's the traditional site, which is typically because, like, some Roman emperor, the Roman emperor's wife, came up and was doing a tour and looked at something and said, oh, there's a river. And then their guide said, yeah, that's where Jesus baptized. And she went, really, right there? And they said, yeah, right there. And they went, cool. And then they walked off and they built a church there. So, like, that's the traditional site. Uh, and, and one of the places where you see the uh, baptismal site on the Jordan River is kind of one of these traditional sites. Now we went to an area that um, I remember our guide was saying this is actually probably more accurately where things actually happened and you can absolutely see why it's not where they take the Taurus because it is swampy and is in the middle of nowhere and you're looking right across the river at a Jordanian soldier sitting on a fold out lawn chair with his AK-47 because that's the world out there. Um, and when you're looking at this area it is nothing to write home about it is it is very humble meek and all that but it's also very remote and you start getting a sense of the fact that especially you know when you kind of read this that individuals are hearing about this guy and it's the spectacle that God has created around this individual simply proclaiming the truth that is attracting people and then once the people come once they kind of answer the call so to speak then you see John doing his part boldly proclaiming the truth you know, proclaiming it to individuals that were the authorities, to the individuals who were the the passerbys. And I'm not trying to sit here and say that John didn't have other moments in his life where he didn't sit here and and proactively go to other areas. But what I am trying to point out is that the quintessential example of the loud, boisterous Christian, I say that, you know, with air quotes, uh, is somebody who in reality, his biggest spectacle here is that he was out in this remote area of the Jordan River baptizing people. And so you start looking at this and saying, hmm, well, this is kind of a far cry from randomly going on a street corner in Richmond and then just screaming at people. I mean, even if we just take away, you know, the content of what somebody might say, the theology of what they might say, you just kind of think about the effectiveness of something like that. Individuals who were approaching John had heard about John. You know, he lived in a certain way. He answered a certain calling from God he executed a certain kind of ministry and because of what he was doing and because it was so compelling individuals were being brought to him and then he responded to the individuals that were being brought to him and so there's this interesting dichotomy that exists here between the fact that John was not a passive individual he was not just sitting in his house calmly and waiting for people to walk up to him and say hey John can you tell me about this Jesus guy? That wasn't taking place. But at the same time, he also wasn't going up to people randomly and grabbing them by the shoulder and saying, you're going to go to hell if you don't go to church. There was a, something that was happening working together. There was almost this you, you, you know, idea or this dynamic between John and God where you can see that God is in effect actually setting the divine appointment up and John is willingly acting as the tool. And when you picture that idea of an individual who wants to boldly profess their faith, doesn't that seem much more Christ-like? An individual who doesn't see themselves as creating the divine appointment, but yet an individual who sees himself as a loyal and humble tool to respond to whatever appointment God has called him to. That's what we end up seeing in so many of these individuals in the Old Testament. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like we have to be so cautious when it comes to this thing that has kind of become... Uh, I don't want to say popular, but maybe it's become prevalent over the last 30, 40-ish years in evangelical churches, which is you know kind of the the, the roadside ministry, the evangelism and all that. These things may be done with the noblest of intentions. And some people, God can work through everything. He can work through pagans in order to see his will come to fruition. So I have no doubt that some people are saved through those efforts. But the question is, is this what we see actually modeled in the scripture? And once we can kind of set that up then we can start saying like okay well then are some of these things negotiables or non-negotiables and all that if there's something we do because we think it's effective or it's something we feel that is comfortable for us and we acknowledge right but it's not necessarily something in the bible so if you know it comes in conflict with something else we need to be willing to sacrifice it if we can all have that adult conversation then fine whatever go knock on doors i don't care but If we're going to sit here and, you know, somebody's going to say, well, if you're not doing this, you're not really truly a Christian, then that's where we have issues. Because you don't see that borne out in the scriptures. So what am I talking about? Well, you can actually look at the actions that Jesus takes with his disciples. And you can actually see elements of this that I think are really, really, really interesting. The first goes in a little bit of a different direction. The first thing I want to talk about is when somebody is... Uh, sitting here and you know, doing this whole yelling and being brash and all that, I am dead convinced, and you cannot say anything to convince me otherwise, that there is an element of those individuals that feel very pious in being willing to sacrifice their pride in screaming at the top of their lungs uh, you know, how much they believe in Jesus. Because, again, you look at that and you say, well, it can't be based on effectiveness. Because I don't know under what rational world you sit here and say, this is going to be the most effective way in order to connect with individuals is to scream at them. So the only thing you're really left with is there's some idea of being willing or or, or, or deriving some joy out of publicly throwing your piety out there. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about that. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 2, we see this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whatever you give to the poor, don't sound a trump don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly I tell you, they have their reward. Now typically when we sit here and we study this passage, we're specifically talking about, and rightly so, people giving offerings and people being generous and whatnot. But when you look at the beginning of this and the fact that Jesus points out your righteousness, that is something that I think directly applies to what we're talking about right here. That there is a sense of looking at ourselves when we do anything for God and trying to evaluate whether we're doing this for God or whether we're doing it for ourselves. And that's true whether you talk about doing something with the church whether it's something I'm doing with another individual in my family, we have to sit here and ask ourselves and be honest with ourselves, am I doing this because I feel like this makes me feel better that I'm being a good little Christian and therefore I'm validated and I really want other people to see it? Or am I doing this because this is really, truly, honestly what I feel like God has called me to do? Because what we end up saying is that even if your action on the back end ends up still being good and noble and all that, but your heart is doing it, for the purpose of elevating yourself, what we see Christ saying is that you've already received your reward. So it's kind of almost a great irony that you think of many individuals who sometimes through their enthusiasm may sit here and scream at other individuals about Jesus Christ and you know, kind of flatter themselves that, you know, well, I know that even if all these people reject me, that God will accept me and he will reward me. And it's ironic because you kind of look at this and go, I'm not so certain about that. It would depend on what your heart is, and I don't know what your heart is, but, I mean, depending on how much you're doing this kind of for your own uh, for your own benefit or so that people can see how righteous you are, maybe you don't receive a whole lot out of this. Maybe in reality God looks at you and says, you got your reward. You felt very good and very powerful standing on that street corner and yelling at everybody about me. And in the meantime, you didn't actually form a relationship with anybody. One of the other things that we actually see is we actually see Jesus uh, seeming to not really direct people towards the streets, so to speak. Um, And when I say that, not to say the streets is in like the abject poverty and all that, because... Clearly, Jesus was all about, you know, going to all kinds of individuals. But when you see the relationship with the public, that's what's fascinating. Just think about Jesus' ministry. Whenever he would sit here and have these throngs of people following him around, how many times did he either retreat or send them away or something like that? Jesus was clearly not trying to build his fan club. That wasn't his concern. He was trying to build relationships with people. And so this is why you see him several times seeming to almost like directly push people away actively. He, even when he's commissioning his own disciples, you can kind of see him almost look at like the broad public eye and say, don't focus on that. Focus on individuals forming those intentional relationships. In Luke chapter 10, verses 2 through 9, we see this. He told them, the disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Love that verse. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If, uh, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. What I absolutely love in here is the picture of these disciples who are being sent out. Boldness to proclaim the truth, to not live with fear, to understand the dynamics that I am sending you out as lambs to the wolves. This is not going to be easy and I want you to do it anyway. Be bold, be brave, be confident, but also understand it's not about just grabbing as many people as possible. Go into the house that welcomes you. Form a relationship with them. Heal the sick. Love people who are rejected. Show compassion on those who need compassion. That is the picture you end up seeing Jesus sending the disciples out with. And would you look at Jesus and the disciples and say, well, they were ineffective. They didn't have any large conference halls full of people. And they weren't sitting here gathering massive crowds outside of them and selling tickets and doing promotions and giveaways in order to get people to uh, show up to come see Jesus. What you see is the picture of somebody who, if anything, eschews away the public eye and instead says you need to find people that I am sending you to and as I send you to those people, talk with them, form a relationship with them and you can quickly start seeing how far off the bullseye our idea of a successful church has gotten today. That when we sit here and we consider, look at a dying church, we sit here and we say, well, it's you know, dwindling numbers and they don't have the proper programs and, and all these kind of things. And then when we look at a successful church, we say, well, just look at LifePoint. Well, just look at Spotswood. And I'm not picking on them in particular. I'm just saying that we look at that as kind of what I would consider traditional success. Big budget, big facility, you know, massive amounts of programs. we say, man, yeah, they really got it going on. And I'm not going to deny that from a 501c3 perspective. They are not very, very, very secure. They are absolutely a great organization. But the question is, are they the body of Christ? And they may be, but so is the church that has five people in it who actually love other individuals. So is the church that has 30 people and sits here and says, you know what? We don't do a whole lot, but we feel passionate that we need to reach out to the homeless. So we're going to sit here and we're the only thing we're going to do as a church is form a soup kitchen that church is also living as an instrument of God's will. And so we can quickly start seeing that the idea of what makes a successful church is not your endowment fund and it's not your committees and it's not all of these other traditional ideas of stability. It's the fact that we are going where God has called us to go without fear, with confidence that Christ is behind us and we are doing what we feel God has called us to do. That is what dictates whether you are a successful church or not. Everything else, conventional ideas of what somebody else wants to say makes your church great or not great, whatever. That's irrelevant. Do what God has called you to do and you'll be doing the right thing. It sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but sometimes it needs to be said. Now what we do see Jesus saying is to go out boldly and to bring people in. Not to be confused with saying hide behind your brick walls and your stained glass window, but saying to go out, form the relationships, and bring people in. Just take a look at this parable here in Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. We see this. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, So this is Jesus, you know, beginning to tell like a. a, a, a uh, a parable, right? It says a man was given a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, "Come, because everything is now ready." But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, "I have bought a field and I must go and see it. I ask you to excuse me." Another said, "I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me." And another said, "I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come." So the servant came back and reported these things to the master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who are invited will enjoy my banquet. When I sit here and I look at this, it's it's pretty hard to not look at our church today and see individuals who kind of fancy themselves as good, proper, church-going individuals and say, are you answering the call that God has placed on your heart? Some have. Some maybe are not. But the point is that the goodness of an individual, the righteousness of somebody, the suitability of somebody to be a part of God's kingdom is not dictated by the position that they think they have or by the reputation they think they enjoy. The individuals who were originally invited here to the party were the individuals who were originally invited. But just because they were originally invited, just because they kind of held that initial sense of belonging or esteem or position didn't mean that they ended up at the end of the day being the people who were welcomed by the master. Instead, it was the rejects of society. And so when you look at this, you can look at this as, as Pharisees and religious elite versus, you know, kind of the common people. You can look at this as the, the church status quo and then individuals who have been rejected. But when I look at something like this, what I think of is I think of all of those way too many churches that we have. And then I think about the other individuals who feel like they've been pushed away from God and who feel like they, they can't believe in a Bible because of the people who claim to follow it. I think about those individuals and I say... Those are the individuals that the master welcomes. It's not the individuals who sit here and say, I've served on every committee and I've sat here and, you know, been a, 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 an elder, a deacon, a trustee, a, a whatever it is. It's the individuals that have answered the calling of Christ on their hearts. So when you put all this together, the picture that you end up getting is a picture of a God that wants you to be bold, that wants you to go out but at the same time, doesn't want you to do it just because you think the end result is you know going to somehow uh, be something that God really needed you to go do. You know, it's not a matter of you know you're going to go do this and you're going to go create all these situations and as a result of that, all these throngs of people are going to be saved. Because rest assured, people are going to be saved because they hear God, not because they heard you. And so if you're going out there screaming at them and you're doing it kind of devoid of God, then good luck. So. To sit here and kind of wrap things up a little bit, I want to look very briefly at the first couple of chapters here in, um, in the book of Acts. And when you look at this, it's kind of interesting to see how this church operated and some of these things that we've been discussing here reinforced. You look in Acts 2 verses 1 through 6 and you kind of see Peter's you know, famous first sermon that he gives, right? And when you see this, this is the stuff that happens before Peter starts preaching. So let's look at how all these people were put together. Was because Peter ran out into the street and said, "Oh ye, oh yeah, everybody listen to me. No, instead you see this. Starting in verse one When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Once again, God sets the divine appointments, and then we respond. So what you can see here is that God, through his power and through his plan and his divine nature, created the spectacle that attracted people to this group of disciples and believers. And what results is the first sermon and throngs of individuals coming to Christ. Not because Peter set out to create a glorious display on his own, but because God set it up and Peter saw the opportunity and said, let's go. That's so often how God acts in our own life, is not by sitting here and like giving you exactly, precisely the right sign, saying, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to tell you right now, right now, John, right now, and you did go, but not, right, not yet, not yet, wait a second, okay, now go. Like, that's so often not how signs work in our life. So often how it works is by opportunities to show our devotion and humility to God, where the opportunity is laid before us to do that thing that is caring, that is compassionate, that thing that does minister to other individuals, and then it's a test for us to see, are we going to take advantage of that opportunity? God has set up the appointment, are we going to be late? We also see that God acts through us, so not just around us, as He did in this case, but He acts through us and can create those, those spectacles through what He has called us to do and through us being, being devout to the calling that He's called us to. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1-12, through 12, we see now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful. So that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade, where Peter saw this. He addressed the people, "'Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this?' Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? So God worked through the faith of Peter and John. And it's important to note the faith element that existed within Peter and John, that there had to be a tremendous amount of faith for Peter to look at somebody and say, I can't give you you silver or gold, but uh, you should get up and walk now, and have the faith that God is going to work through him in order to do those things. But with that being said, it was the faith of Peter and John. It was not Peter and John going out and once again creating their own spectacle. It was them sitting here saying, here's an individual God has put in my life right now. Here's a divine appointment and now I'm going to answer it and I'm going to act on my faith. The spectacle called all the people Uh, called all the people to pay attention to what they would then later have to say. The last thing that we have in here is from Acts 4, verses 1 through 4, and you end up seeing the resilience and God working not just around you and not just through you, but then also God displaying his own strength in you. So, in Acts chapter four, verses one through four, we see while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were uh, that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the death. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day. Uh, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Here in the very beginning of this you can see the oppression and people trying to silence the disciples and whatnot, and, and what ends up co- becoming of that. Because of the strength and the endurance and the perseverance of these disciples the message stuck around with many individuals who were uh, left in the wake of this bad thing that had happened to these individuals and they believed. They believed because they could see the endurance, the strength that God had endowed his people with. And this is something that you end up seeing constantly throughout the ministry of Paul. That Paul, in, even in his epistles that we have to this day, talking about his own weakness and talking about his own uh, uh, you know, struggles that he has physically and, and different things going on in his life. And yet, despite all of those things, he was able to be strong, he was able to persevere, and as a result, people believed. People's strength in Christ grew and grew and grew. So you can see that not just through the things that go on around us environmentally and not just through the things God directly does through us supernaturally, but also through the things that we go through in our perseverance and endurance, people are attracted to that. It's easy to sit here and proclaim the name of somebody called Jesus Christ whenever you got your job, you got your house, everything's going great at home and life's good. It's much, much harder to sit here and to, with joy, proclaim the name of Christ, to recognize the blessings that God has given you through your trials and through your tribulations. And when that happens and people are able to see that you have a joy and a strength that overcomes anything the world throws at you, that is something that the world is attracted to. And that is something that the world sees and goes, I can believe in that. The final thing I have in here, and I guess the one word for us, both as individuals who might be tempted to do something and also as individuals who may have been hurt in the past, is to understand that the message of Christ is powerful and is confident and it is bold, but it is also very gentle. There is no greater example of a being's gentleness than a God who has all authority and position and and correctness to sit here and to end everything, to send everybody to judgment for their sins, and yet chooses grace. That is a divine display of grace. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, we see the Lord's servant must not quarrel, must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Many individuals have been hurt by perhaps well-meaning Christians who have just wanted to boldly proclaim the Word of God the way that they feel they are called to do. And we can't judge them for it. At the same time, we have to have compassion on these individuals who feel they've been hurt. Because sometimes it's not conviction. Sometimes it, it is a legitimate emotional or spiritual hurt that they are feeling. Maybe it's because there's a guilt that they're dealing with. Or maybe it's because the bar they feel that's been set for them is too high and they simply can't meet it. And when that happens, it's important for us to be accountable to our own actions, not judging other individuals for how they did their things, because God will deal with that. But for us in our own actions, as we have the opportunity to show people something that maybe truly looks different, maybe maybe what we're really called to is not just to show people something that looks different than the world around us, but maybe it's also the opportunity to show people something that looks different than the Christianity that hurt them in the past. That is the opportunity that we have, and that is the blessing that we get to participate in, to show people love, compassion, and gentleness where other individuals have showed nothing but harshness, judgment, rumors, all kinds of things that that drives people away from the church. So whenever we have that choice, whenever we have that opportunity, choose gentleness. And by God, whatever you do, if God has brought you to a divine appointment, then just show up. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time together and we thank you for, for all the different opportunities that, that we've had in our, our, our lives to be able to share you with people around us. We pray that you would help us to have the words to say and the right words to say whenever you set up that divine appointment. Give us, give us boldness, give us confidence to be able to proclaim your truth, but to do it in a way that people can see love and compassion and not hate and judgment. Help us to be individuals that show the same discernment and that show the same wisdom that we see the, the prophets and then we see the apostles in the Bible showing. Then help us, Lord, whenever we do any of these things, no matter what we do, to do things with the right heart, to do it with a heart that looks to you and that simply wants to act as a humble tool for your glory. We pray all these things in your Son's precious holy name. Amen.